0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lock Talk Radio. Yakuza. Yakuza. Yakuza 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 Kick Radio. 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 The Yakuza Kick Radio. This is the bulldozer, Matt Tremont, that there's one place to listen to on the internet every Thursday, 9 p.m. Yakuza Kick Radio. Tremont says so. The Acoustic Kick Radio has risen from the ashes of bad internet radio and has become the premier place for any independent professional wrestler to stop and record their voice. The shit is bananas, well, this is Mr. Insanity, Toby Klein, and if you're not listening to Yakuza Kick Radio, then you're weird. Boom. I don't like the cut of your jib, fella. This is Greg Excellent. Spirit Dragon of the Northeast. You're listening to Yakuza Kick Radio. If you're not, you're probably watching porn and you have this muted. You should be listening to it. Jason Mann. man. Where are Biggie and Tupac? Yakuza Kick Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Give a nigga a real a that cow, gotcha? All you have to do is listen to Yakuza Kick Radio but you got Now look at that document you Fuck that. Black house. This is bullshit, <laughs> man. <This laughs> motherfucker. Fuck you. Fuck you. And fuck you. Who's And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the introduction. Hosted by J.Cad Morris. You are now listening to Yakuza, Yakuza. K- Welcome to Kick Radio. I'm your host, Jake Morris, As always, man, y'all, y'all got anything going on? Cause I've been, I've been tied up for sure. Um, man, every time I tell you guys it's a heavy episode, um, it's getting repetitive, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it getting to the point where it feels like? it's all heavy because that's how my life feels I I have to tell you with great great honesty as I always try to I just I gotta be straight up and genuine about what I what I'm about Um, I'm gonna tell you what I'm going through I'm gonna tell you what my current situation is trying to be careful but in the same token it's hard to because there's so much truth that needs to get out there Um, I'll tell you the emotions that I'm feeling through this whole situation first. I, I have to tell you that I've felt every emotion at the same time. If you ever walk through a subway and at first you hear a couple conversations, you hear a couple people talking, within minutes, within seconds, it, it starts to turn into this buzz in your brain, and you no longer even can make a word out out of the crowd. And every once in a while, you get these little it almost hears like your sounds like your ears popping, and that reality seeps in. You hear a couple words, or, and it just, and then it shoots you back into this buzz. That's the way my brain's been operating, At 24 hours a day, pretty much since I went out on disability. Things have been awful heightened the past few days for sure, but understand that as I've outlined, I haven't gone to sleep before three o'clock in the morning since I've been out on disability except for maybe a few times last night I went to sleep after 5 o'clock in the morning Um, when I say all emotions I definitely have to add happiness and excitement right well I can tell you that leading to this there was a small glimmer of excitement and anticipation because this is something I've had to stay quiet about for so so long I constantly lived in fear of saying too much, as every shelter employee does. I can speak for the place I worked, and I can tell you that I know that that's the trend of shelters as a whole. So many shelter workers have to suffer in silence and only tell the public so much. And while telling the public only so much, they have to create an illusion that everything is okay. They have to take the brunt of the torture of the the mental weight and they have to absorb it as this that's their responsibility not only do they have to care for the cats they have to suffer in silence they have to they have to polish this thing up to look like it's not what it is because what it is when it comes down to the mission that i have put forth i I'll explain my mission. See, this is the thing. I don't have anything written down, even the video I did uh, that I put on TikTok and, and, and YouTube. I didn't write anything down. I could talk for hours. I'll tell you, I just I just recorded five more videos for YouTube and TikTok, 10 minutes apiece, because I wanted to be able to fit on TikTok, right? I got hundreds of people showing me love, and, and it feels so freeing because it's it's something that i haven't had the opportunity to to see before you get people to go oh, jay's great oh yeah he's great for the cats and then they move on my six days a week still revolves around the suffering and struggle to continue to get them homes on a treadmill that doesn't stop moving and at the end of that treadmill going as fast as i can possibly move it cancer slammed me into the wall and I, and i didn't have a choice but to stop where was I um my emotions that's I didn't finish the emotions so so there's a little bit of a the glimmer of happiness that I've had you know in this process here because I finally get to speak it's immediately coupled with fear and anxiety though of what's going to happen next there's people that you know the, the the head of this organization has great great wealth um from what I've heard, he has a bell in his house, and when he rings it, a servant shows up and asks him what he'd like. And I'm not exaggerating. This is a legitimate thing that I've heard. He was an investment banker. He's made a lot of money, and he's taking a lot of money now. I'm I'm pretty sure of it. I don't mean taking as far as stealing. I have no evidence of things of that nature. I can just say that I'm sure his salary treats him well. I've heard of his people being paid very well as well. Um so um but i I know a person with great wealth like that has the ability to you know things can happen every car that comes down my street, I'm looking out the window like a crackhead. I'm not sleeping i'm um, mm. which I mean was already happening, but I'm nervous uh i I don't I don't know. I mean, the legal power, the everything. I, I don't have any direction. I don't have any guidance. I don't have anybody to really say, hey, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. So this is a person who's just desperate after 21 years of having to be a certain level of silence and then getting, getting hit with an avalanche of things that completely attacked my passion, my love, my, my drive, and everything I've ever put into this. And it's me finally getting the ability to speak and trying to make sure that I maintain as much of the high road as I can and, and not put myself in a situation where I have to fight for my own self any more than I already do. Because, you know, the other part about it, I think we've covered most of the emotions, but the other part about it is the income. Uh, I've outlined it pretty well to you guys, but I mean, just to go over it again, um, my disability cut off in February. Um, so initially, I went out of work in at the end of September. Previous to that, and I mean like the 28th or 29th, um, I forget what my actual last work day is. I know my surgery was on October 4th. I know on October 2nd and 3rd, I did nothing but work in torrential downpours to wrap my chicken pen and unearth all the bulbs in my yard, in my garden. So that way, the the winterizing was done in October previous to my surgery because I know I had two months ahead of me without being able to do any of these things and I wasn't going to put that burden on my family and have an expectation of everything going well if I didn't if I wasn't the one doing it you know um so let's go back to my mission um my mission was born out of multiple things. My mission was born because when I grew up, I was picked on. I was beat up. I was outcast. I I lived up north, north Jersey, uh, Woodbridge area. I lived in kind of like the Woodbridge projects, so to speak, on Buns Lane my first seven years, you know, which, you know, isn't like an enormous chunk of my childhood or anything like that. But, you know, it was enough to ingrain some different things that weren't really familiar or friendly to the people in this area so where i live now in Lacey township this is um the pine Barrens slash shore area i mean you know th- it's to me it's an amazing area because within five minutes i could be in the middle of the pines and on the other side of that two to five minutes i could be at the bay like it's i have the ocean out here i have the pine barrens out here you can find endless woods in certain directions and endless water in other directions. It's, it's quite fascinating, especially when you're into wildlife and nature and all those things. But one thing that was not regular down here was diversity. When I came down here at eight years old, I was an eight-year-old kid that used to find cardboard boxes with my little friends and we'd go drag them out of the garbages and we'd bring them to the older kids so they could break dance on and, and, and play run DMC on the room boxes. This was early experience I had. My father was a rock and roller. He was a, uh, an aspiring rock star. He came close to hitting it once in the seventies or early eighties, I should say, definitely eighties when he was about to hit a band named Rivendell. They played North Jersey clubs all over the place. Um, when MTV was at its inception, they actually had a deal to get something cleared onto MTV, and things fell apart, you know, bands fighting, all of this stuff. But I was raised around the uh, entire rock coke era of the 80s, uh, drug in and out of clubs and things that, you know, obviously parents would be arrested for doing now. Um, was just the norm back then. You, you drug your kid through a smoke-filled club, if you were working at that club, if you were bartending, if you were a band playing, it was normal shit. You put them off to the side, hey, kid, you know, just eh, play with this for a while. Here's a here's a, a fucking um, cherry and fucking cherry and soda, you know what I mean? The uh, Shirley Temple or whatever they called it, you know what I mean? They give you a little cherry juice and fucking sparkling water shit, you know what I mean? Maybe that, maybe that uh, ingrained that sparkling water love I have all those years earlier. Who knows? But, um, you know, that, that was that was my early life. You know, my, my father was friends with every member of Bon Jovi except for John. Um, Richie Sambora was in my parents' wedding. Um, you know, this didn't carry on to me being attached to any kind of celebrity. I, I can't contact these people now. I sure as hell wish I could because I'm in desperate need of, of big names and big people being able to spread this word and make this a very, very um, – mobile thing making this something that becomes colossal as it, as it deserves to but anyway i'm just trying to give you a little background um you know my father was always wrapped up in that really not me at all um when my brother was born we moved to south jersey to do better for the family i guess because i guess that was that was uh you know sparked by the second child or whatever you'd like to call it it um, might as well weave into the cat side of things while I'm there um, so in the first seven years I, I owned one cat my very first cat ever I have a picture of her and a little heart frame on my knife stand that I'll keep forever and her collar that I actually made in, in leather shop when we moved down here but um, her name was Mindy and uh, my parents got her for me I don't even know where they got her from but I remember all of a sudden I had this beautiful, gorgeous, long-haired white cat in my life as a child. But we lived in the apartments of Buttons Lane, and they told me that it would be bad if they found out that we had her. I mean, I had this beautiful cat that was suddenly mine, and she would touch my face and as a child. And I just I had such an immediate warmth and love of what was going on with this cat and just 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 interacting with an animal this is one of my first experiences minus going to my grandmother's house who was everything to me she was she was everything she's who my first daughter's named after mary jane she's my where my love from for for 49ers came in and she's where my love of animals came in and i don't even remember how long we actually had mindy in our apartment there but it felt like it wasn't long before they told us that she hangs down the window too much and we're going to get caught and we have to get rid of her. Well, luckily my grandmother being the saint that she was says, I I'll take her in. So she immediately took her on years later. She became a diabetic. Um, my grandmother gave her insulin shots and did everything she could to keep Mindy alive as long as she could possibly live. Every time I visited my grandmother's house, it would be like an oasis because she had a couple dogs. She had a couple cats. I, I, it was just she had parakeets, she had fish tanks, she had animals, and mm-hmm. that to me was something that was an alternate universe, and I could just connect with those animals, and and just it just felt different. There was something there. It just felt different. I I never knew I had a gift until I had a platform to build that, which was mm-hmm. AHS Popcorn Park. So. I can't say that, oh, well, and then I knew I had a gift. I didn't know anything. I I went through so many different phases and so many different, um, different forms of life as I went. You know, I tried to be this. I tried to be this. I tried to fit in in this avenue. There was a point where I turned Muslim because I wanted to fit in with those. With, with that group of people because they were accepting me. So I, I, I stopped eating pork and I owned the Quran and I considered myself Muslim despite being a horrible representation of that. You understand, like, my life has taken me in very, very different directions. And the one that felt right and in retrospect it all made sense was animals. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there because that was the actual first experience with things like that. Um So, when I moved down here from up there, um, mostly rednecks down here, um, they did not like black people. They did not like rap music. They didn't like baggy pants. They didn't like any of the things that I had going on because, well, I didn't see an issue with it. There was was no hate on my end. If any hate or pushback there was, it was probably from my father, who wasn't really openly um, racist but he surely didn't have any black friends and wasn't a lot of uh, soulful music on the playlist. I could put it that way. Um, later on, he would say racist things and end our relationship at 15 years old. When I was 15, that was, that was when the, uh, the N-word was thrown in my direction. And, um, you know, that, that was the last I spoke to him. So let's go back to when I came out here. I was bullied. I was um, not a priority of my father's, and due to that, I suffered heavily in school. Um, I checked out. I wasn't. I wasn't able to focus, and it was because I never had stability. I would get yelled at for everything at home, and I would be um, just verbally abused. You know, my father wasn't very bu- uh, physically abusive, but you could leave that to the kids at school. Once you crush your child's confidence. What once you once you make them feel like they're not good enough for anything, the world will take care of them. You know, that's 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 the path that was laid for me. You know, the, I had a father that didn't didn't teach me how to fight, but when I had 10 people show up at my front door one day because they wanted to fight me, they they all got together and came over. And I fucking looked out front and said, "I'm not fucking going out there. Are you fucking kidding me? Like I can't fight. Like I got beat up by somebody last week." I'm not going to be, uh, certainly not going to be upping the numbers The hell if I'm going outside. This fucking guy answers the door and he says, you guys aren't jumping my son. You're like, oh shit. Right? He goes, you guys line up and he'll fight every one of you one by one. I looked at this motherfucker like, I don't know who the fuck you raised or when you were planning on showing me how to fight. Cause that would have been before now. <laughs> you know, I look at this motherfucker like, you go fight these motherfuckers one on one. But, you know, um, countless other times there was there was no one even there to try to reorganize the way I was going to be fought or any of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I I wasn't willing to change who I was. And over time, sure, I got a chip on my shoulder and I started saying smart-ass shit back to people because that's who I am. Anybody who knows me knows, knows I'm quick-witted. I've learned to say some sharp shit back to people pretty quick but when these are the people beating you up it surely doesn't help you it's it's a snowball effect that went for years and years of lack of self confidence and um prey and, and predator mentality because when the dominant kids in the school the bullies the the cool kids see this weak easy to beat person that they can make an example of that's what was done so i was i was called to a lot of things i was I was considered to be just throwaway. I, was, I didn't matter. I, I no longer mattered at all. The, the sports kids wanted nothing to do with me. And, again, if you know me now, you know I'm an athletic motherfucker, man. I, I kick fucking ass. I am a physical fucking specimen as far as I'm concerned. And I, I don't say that in a way of arrogance, which, you know, I. It, it sucks that you still even after all of this have to have to even make that distinction and I'm trying to stop myself from doing that and let people feel how they want to feel about my confidence because if I built it to the point where people believe it's arrogance well I've fucking succeeded I've 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 climbed a fucking mountain to be where I'm at so anyway you know um, I I I, you know it was a lot of years of that and it was a lot of um, not being able to overcome any of it because I didn't have a team I didn't have anything I couldn't join a sport and make that my focus in school because I wasn't accepted. I wasn't cool enough to be part of any of the, the crews or groups because I didn't fit into the way that they dressed. I didn't fit into the music they liked, the trends that were going on. Um, you know, it, it made things very hard. I say all of this just so you understand that I understand what it's like to be counted out. I understand what it's like to be discarded. I I understand what it's like to be told right in front of you or, or hear other people be talked to in front of you where you're being cast away. You're just being written off as, stay away from him. He can only make your work worse. They do nothing to help me. And in the end, That's it. That's that's what I have to sit with is people aren't willing to help me, and they're actively trying to get people away from me and to change the narrative about how people feel about me, and it worked. It fucking worked big time because I didn't fit into any group. And as time went, like I said, I had a batter attitude about it, so I surely wasn't the guy who was going to be like, no, I don't want to fight. I said that a lot of times, and eventually it was, fuck you, motherfucker, because I'm tired of getting punched. I'm tired of getting fucking hit. I'm tired of getting fucking treated like garbage, and I, I have to, I have to lay that story out, not, not to tell you that I'm a victim, not to tell you that, to tell you that poor me, I got picked on as a kid, it's the fact, it's the reality, but the thing is, is I rose above that shit, I, I, I fought through that, I, I battled through alcoholism, I, I, I did everything I did, Because I had to win. I had to go up against my own struggles. The only one that was going to beat those things was me. As they tell you, an addict can't be fixed by anybody else. They have to fix themselves. It's not just an addict. It's every struggle we go through in life. Everything we go through in life, we have more control over that shit than anybody else does. And our mind is stronger than my body, and my mind is fucking damaged you know i have, i have a lot of intelligence i have a lot of knowledge and wisdom that i've gained over the years but the the mental torment of the overthinking and the as i told you the subway noise in my head it's terrifying um so when all right um so i think we're I can I can give you another story that will give you um, another touching base with Popcorn Park. So it was 1995. I was going through a whole lot of things and definitely not in a very responsible phase. But I took a job at AHS Popcorn Park back in '95, and it was a six-month stay. It wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't this. But it planted a seed. It definitely planted a seed. I was there for six months. I was only a seventeen-year-old kid. I was a floater, which meant I just kind of helped out wherever needed. I was a part timer, so I wasn't the guy who was there every day. I wasn't going to have an area that I was responsible for. I was going to kind of buzz around. At the time, the kennels were open a lot, and uh, the kennels were you know needed workers a lot. So I did a lot of spraying out dog kennels. I um. I had a. Uh, terrible experience one day um i was cleaning out a kennel now the other thing about the kennels as you should know is is it was just infested with mice i i'd be spraying out the kennel and, and mice would go running uh, you'd lift the dog beds and they'd fly out from under there sometimes you'd find dead mice um the one time was which was pretty terrible to me um i, uh, I lifted up the bed and a mouse ran out, and dove into a hole in the wall, but couldn't get all the way in, and and pellets started popping out of the back of the mouse, which I then realized she was giving forced labor to these babies because she was running in terror from me, just trying to clean the other animal's enclosure. So, you know, it's it's things like that to stay in your mind when you have a true love for animals. You you don't know how to just go, it's just a mouse, because it's it's a life, and it's, it's something I'm not out there trying to save every mouse's life, but the last thing I want to do is see them struggle. I don't want to see a mouse struggle. I don't want to see anything struggle like that. I've gotten to the point of positivity that I don't like people struggling, and for the longest time I was cold to that because I was so fixated on everything that – that mattered in the animal world that it had to override people because the thing about that is is laws are set up for people not animals you can get a guard dog if the guard dog kills somebody to guard you they kill the dog that's the yeah. end of the story so it's not your pet it's not your you know your family it's it's a disposable weapon you have Shit like that is, is the stuff that weighs on you when you're really deep into this animal thing. It's, it's not easy to just view the public anymore because you're going to see something wrong with the way an animal is being treated and someone just being all right with it. There's a lot of turning your head just to, just to keep going. You don't search for more stories about animals when you get home after working eight hours, six days a week, one day off i'd see cats outside anywhere i'd go and i'd turn my head and, and just bow my head in like sadness like it's every time i see a cat outside it's just sad to me i know what they go through i've seen the result of it i've seen cats have their ear ripped off hanging off their head his name's oscar he's in a home right now he's fiv positive and those people are absolute heroes because they took home multiple fiv positive cats the cats when i first got into the animal shelter 21 years ago, they were euthanizing everything that turned up positive. Years later, some some things have changed about the standards and thoughts about um, about you know how how that that thing is being treated. But it's still a huge turnoff to most adopters. And cats will sit in shelters for long, long periods of time because of of being diagnosed with that. So it's it's a lot, and you know, to have people like that that take those cats in after they had to suffer the abuse and, and torture of being outside and and struggling and fighting through injuries and just having to just be out in the cold and the rain with their ear ripped open and being lucky enough for that injury to happen in the winter so maggots aren't eating their heads. Just to come into a shelter to be defensive and have to have me build his confidence enough for him to feel that he can trust people again. And I sent him home, and I digress back to two thousand or nineteen ninety five um, very few stories I have from there because again, I was only a floater, and most of them negative, but the one thing that I had positive um there was just something it just there was just something I didn't even get the chance to work with cats. I remember one day we had to it was ninety five there was a snowstorm, it was terrible in ninety five. Um, in Jersey. Jersey shore. And um there was a snowstorm that was terrible. Well the elephant, Sonny, had been locked in for three days because they couldn't get him outside and this you know, an African elephant in the snow is fucking probably not too easy to deal with. And Sonny was no joke. Sonny was a he was a, a circus elephant that was rescued from abusive circus life. So when that's that's his uh path you gotta know that um he's not you know, he used to throw shit at you like like a like a major league baseball pitcher. He would fucking take an enormous ball of shit and someone would yell, Watch out and you'd have to duck and, and it would just hit the fucking wall. There's probably still remnants of Sunny shit on the ceiling of that elephant barn in there because he used to throw it like fucking with bad intentions like um so anyway i remember you know just being like hey kid come over here help out yeah we got to get this elephant out so the cool part of that was going outside and and we got to like slip in between the bars because you know people could fit through elephant cage bars where elephants can't uh so you slide right through and and you're standing in the elephant's yard staring down this elephant in the opening And throwing carrots in his direction and trying to get him to come towards you. And finally, you know, he starts coming out and we just we slip right out. Obviously, no danger. He was, you know, whatever, 50, 100 feet away. It was it was quite a ways away and, um, you know, no, no bravery or danger involved. I was just just saying it was such a cool experience because I never had anything like that. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the following that was they locked the door and then we cleaned three days worth of elephant shit out of there, which is a smell I'll never forget. Um, that's, uh, I mean, like four foothills of shit, (laughs) like three, three, four foothills of shit, like, oh my God, like fucking brutal. But anyway, um, still an experience that I'll, I'll take with me as a positive because I'll never be that close to an elephant that way. That's not, you know, something I, I even aimed for. It just, just landed there. Well, the other terrible experience that I had there back in 95, um, this is the type of thing that you endure in the animal world and it just goes away and it just becomes something that you have to carry into the future and get over it. It becomes your struggle and your only way to... um, People text me while I'm doing this thing. The other thing too is I've been trying to pull myself away from this phone because I'm getting a lot of love but... Like every fifth comment, something hits me or I respond to it in the way that I'm responding to it. And then I'm just a ball of tears and I got to battle myself back to being a functional human again. And it's just this this whole cycle has been crazy. So, again, I'm sorry if I'm like really all over the place. I'm hoping you're gaining some uh, entertainment from this, I guess. Um, I just I just want people to know what I'm going through. Um, I, I thank all of you guys everybody who's been positive towards me I can't thank you enough I can tell you for 21 years I don't know that I've I've seen the amount of people all at one time saying nice things about me that I've seen in the past two days and it's so so fulfilling and, and so validating of what I've done and you feel like you're alone for a lot of this time and I still do I gotta tell you it's it's cold. It's lonely. You know, um, my twins are home. They're down the hall. But you know, um, you know, my wife's at work. She works at an animal hospital, uh, emergency animal hospital. So that's our only income right now. As I chip away at my um, my tax return, I got about four grand and left in that. And I got to probably put out close to half of that between the mortgage and the electric bills and the um cable bill and all of that stuff um you know internet all um so it's 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 just it's been crippling mentally um but anyway back to the story so the story is this um there were three dogs at the time they used to house multiple dogs in their double runs more so than they did uh than they do now um they'll put two dogs in a double run is rarely three. And uh, the practice that they did back then isn't something that's currently happening. So I don't want you to be mistaken in saying that like, this is what's happening there. No, this is something that I saw and endured. And by the time I came back, there was a new set of problems, so to speak. You know, it's, it's always something and and it's very difficult to handle all these things, especially um, the, the main thing is in the end, the organization Decided to fight too hard against our own efforts, and that that makes it that makes it um, where you drown, and they watch you, and they they throw you life preservers that are made out of concrete. Um. So the story is this: there were three dogs. They were in a double run. Um, they were all going down to get fixed that day. The the procedure was before we. S- sent them down to get fixed we would fast them so we would pull all the food out of their feeders the night before their or the day of going down to get fixed so they had nothing in their stomach because they can aspirate and choke while they're under anesthesia so you want to fast the animal for that that part about things is very responsible and and understandable right so the three dogs got fixed came back it was a malamute it was a shepherd mix and a chow mix i knew them all well the malamu was an absolute angel very timid but very sweet no aggression uh the shepherd mix was very energetic eager um you know i mean had a lot more of your ready to go excitable dog um the chow mix was more soft, like, I, don't, I almost said soft-spoken, but I mean, um, soft um you know, gentle, um, didn't move quite as fast and energetic, wasn't, you know, old or weak or anything like that, but just a more passive dog overall. Um, well, when they went back in the run after being fixed, they just put them all back in the run coming out of anesthesia. Um, it was coming towards the end of the day, and they put the three of them back in, although the the Malamute was completely out still, still completely sleeping, and the other two were up. And they were kind of starting to sniff around and sniff around the dog who was still sleeping and, you know, not solely focusing on that dog, but just being curious and waking up anti anesthesia and keep in mind that these dogs haven't eaten. I went to the manager because, again, I'm a 17-year-old kid. I know nothing. But I went to the manager at the time, Joe, um, which I don't even remember his last name, but I'm sure somewhere in the archives it it exists. Not that I'm calling to any action. I'm just trying to remember all the things. Um, So he said, they'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, We go home. The next morning I walk in. I flip on the light and there's blood out to the middle of the kennel. I've never seen that much blood in my life. I would later see more blood in the same very very same kennel. And that story will be for another day because I'm I'm not going to come near that with um all the other things I have to cover. And um you know I um I looked in the run and the the Malamute was dead, bled out through the arm, was chewed down to the bone. And, um, obviously traumatizing, terrible. Um, you know, I, um, obviously alarmed and told the managers uh, and all that, and, um, their decision was to euthanize the dogs that killed this other dog. And I was appalled because not only did I know that that was the wrong thing to do because it clearly wasn't the dog's fault based on the situation they were put in, but I knew this chow mix was so soft-natured and kind-natured and and passive that would never eat a dog despite the hunger, despite all the things. And I, I conveyed that and I said, if this needs to happen, I just need you to know that I don't think that this chow mix was involved at all. And... I, I told them that, and they just didn't care. I was just a 17-year-old kid telling them something. I knew nothing. I was a part-timer, and that was just going to be the decision. So with tears in my eyes, I put food in their feeders so they could eat one last time at the very least. The chow mix ran for the feeder and ate the food rapidly, and the shepherd mix looked at me like I already ate, thus confirming my theory that this, this wasn't both of these dogs. And again... I can't even blame the shepherd mix in any way, shape, or form to for the position that dog was put in. But all three of those dogs lost their lives because of humans, because of bad decisions made in an animal shelter. That doesn't mean that things aren't going to be euthanized in an animal shelter. The circumstances on which things are handled changes the way everything goes down. That decision was made and those moves were made, and those were completely wrong, and those could be avoided. So many of these things that I have problems with are are along the same lines of things that can be avoided, things that have been explained as wrong and why they're wrong, and the people in positions of power don't care. So, um, that's, You know, that's a lot of of what my early experience was at AHS. And that was, again, somehow in there, that all left a positive impact on me. That that still felt like something special was going on there. And maybe it was because I saw some terrible things and said, well, maybe if I had a little bit more. I don't know. Because I didn't come in in 2001 with a mission, really. I really didn't. I I can't lie to you and say I came in there with a purpose because I didn't. I was in between jobs. And we had visited the zoo, and I said, hey, why don't I try working here again? This felt like something. And when I went in there and I talked to Rocky, Rocky was the manager at the time, uh, I was filling out the application. And while I'm still filling out the application, he goes, look, you really want to work here? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, when could you start? I was like, uh, "Like ASAP. He's like, do you like cats? It's like, oh, absolutely. Great. And then pretty much told me I could start that coming week. May eighth, two thousand and one was my birthday at AHS. When I showed up there, the policies and the way that things were going, um, the euthanasia was being done by Rocky walking around the shelter and tapping a pen on the front of the cage and if the cat didn't approach the front of the cage to come see what he was doing or his pen or you know, that cat would be written down on a list for euthanasia. A lot of euthanasia was happening back then and We didn't have the proper ACOs. We didn't have the proper staffing. The things that I would do years down the road didn't exist yet. And I saw this going on and I just, I told them, I said, hey, if this is how it goes, I can't stay here because I know that cat. And that's a really friendly cat and just didn't respond to what you just did. You didn't even open the cage to see the cat. This is this animal's life. I understand that if this is what goes on, I, you know, I'm I'm new here. What am I gonna do? But I'm just letting you know that this will be the reason why I leave. And he says, well, it has to be done, and there's nothing I could do about it. I hear what you're saying, but do you want to make the decisions? And I said, yeah, because it would be better than what was going on there. So for 21 years, I had to be the one that made the euthanasia list when our shelter was overcrowded. I had to shuffle cats around until there was no more shuffling to do. I'm the best at that shit. I know how to match cats up together in cages. I know how to get the right cats into our roaming areas. I know how to put the right cats on the right level so they continue to make progress. I know how to work every situation. When you suddenly get a call, this this stuff isn't predetermined. We're not getting shipments that I'm managing. You randomly just get a call that there's eight cats coming in and I have to make moves. And the end of those moves might result in me having to make a euthanasia list and pick cats that have to go. And the only way that that could be done responsibly is to have the person that cares the most make those lists. That responsibility and that weight and that emotional avalanche, that that million-pound weight needs to sit and live on the shoulders of the person who cares more than anyone. The person who's cold that it wouldn't bother, that it wouldn't affect, is the worst person to possibly make them in those lists. Because names and numbers will wind up on those lists that never should have, and you can't get them back. Their lives are over. So this is the beginning of me working there. I had to take on this immense weight, and I still knew nothing about how to make things better for cats, but I just knew decision-wise this this was going to be the path. This was going to be the only way that I could even stay there and have a good conscience about, or at least attempt to have a good conscience about just what this was. When I first started there, um, they had a feral cat yard, and they still do, but, you know, we have since repurposed it. We had since repurposed it where we barely ever used it. But for, I mean, well over a decade of me being there, the wild cat yard was any feral cats that people didn't want on their property were trapped, brought here sat in that area for seven days and then were euthanized and that was that was it they were held for seven days and that's that was the legal need that they needed to do and i had to watch a room full of cats concrete run surrounded by a fence with the um you know the gray fence slats so you can't see the privacy fence so you can't see in and uh, open top so the sun could shine in and a tiny little room that they can go inside and you'd hose out the outside and clean off the outside and they'd scramble up the fence and try to hold on to the fence and often fall and slide down as they hissed, turned and hissed at you and sometimes pissed and shit as they tried to climb back up the fence. Sometimes mother cats would be trying to climb the fence and her dead babies would fall out of her because she forced labor because the stress was so immense. And regardless of all of these different things, as me as an animal lover being in that room with my heart breaking, knowing that I had to clean the room, whether it stressed them out or not, because them being in squalor would be worse than their fate as is. And my gut instinct to tell an animal when they're going through something is to try to tell them it's okay, it's going to be okay, and I couldn't tell them that. I couldn't tell them that at all. It wasn't okay. They had a week to live, a week that I would see the end of. I'd see the following week. I'd see my next birthday. These cats wouldn't see next Wednesday. And I cried myself to sleep, endless nights that I had to clean that area, knowing what was going on. It took years and years of work for us to handle things differently with feral cats, so anything that was TNR'd within trap and release is TNR, just in case you don't know. Um, Anything that was TNR'd at the end, was the very, very bare minimum. It was was last-ditch effort, and I'd say it was one out of 30 cats that we took in, if that. If that, I mean, that were trapped, not that came in because anything came in, turned in, was never put outside. And anything came in that lived in a house was never put outside. The only things that were actually put outside were cats that were outside and showing enough violent tendencies that, to me, Mm -hmm. And to Maria, uh, the wonderful um, animal control officer that they have, and she she and I would judge what was going on. We would look at our cage space and go, well, you know, we only have three cages. I can tell you this cat is shot out of a cannon today, and he's trying to hurt me really bad. Um, I, I mean, if I put this cat in a cage, I'm going to have him for over a year. And right now we're so up against it, I don't have the time to do that. There's times that you know, we would jump on bigger projects because we knew we had the space and and ability to do it. A big part of this animal welfare thing is doing the most you can do, not the least. And that's the difference in the the current mission and the former mission. Following that, following taking on that responsibility and, um, and having to do the wild yard and all of that stuff, as well as doing the male cat yard, um... I, I mean, I I had to deal with so much. And even over that first two years, I was offered um, to be the supervisor. Rocky was deciding to leave. And when he left, you know, this, this animal field thing is so heavy because people will work in it and then turn against it in a way where they look down upon it. People will talk down about you're cleaning shit for a living and, you know. Like it's not bad enough that, you know, you're making no money and and you have no free time and you have to deal with the emotional baggage of a million sad stories and they don't stop coming and they don't go away and they look at you every day. And no matter what bad things that go on in that building, you have to endure. You can't speak too loudly. You can't say anything that will get you thrown out of that building. You can't go above and beyond to tell anybody the story to to help you with your suffering or to help these animals have a better um outlook to have a better label to you know so many of these cats are just labeled mean or feral that i i taught my staff there to to never name something mean don't ever name a cat lucifer don't ever name a cat uh... you know uh, someone named the cat negan because this cat was mean according to him he couldn't handle him so he named him negan and then he talked to the other uh... supervisor i was not a supervisor at the time and they okayed him putting this cat in the wild yard which would have gave him another four days to live he had already lived three days in the shelter that cat right now he's one of the multiple cats that are under the heroes of catlandia instagram page his new name is Leo. When I took him out of the wild yard and I acclimated him in the cage my way because I found out about this happening and I freaked out, I renamed him Valentine because it was right around Valentine's Day. So my, my goal there was to just change his entire um, vibe. You know, He wasn't going to be looked at as Negan anymore. His, this is Valentine. And he just started mushing and loving. I have videos on this and everything. And um, he's in a home now. He's in a home now with another cat that was adopted from there. And you know, these these are the things that we deal with over the years. These are the things that we have to keep pushing and fighting for, is them to not be numbers, for not, them to not just be statistics. They they're personalities. They they all exist and they all they're all real. When you look at your cat, if you're a cat lover, you bond with your cat, and you just think, like, man, this is a beautiful, amazing animal. This, this is my friend. This is something I value in my life so much. I'm here to tell you that none of these cats that are being cast outside are any different. They're not wild animals. They're not. They're domesticated animals. People brought this in. It's not okay to just puppies were born under my shed. So I don't know. I just put a bowl out back and I go back inside and continue with my life. Like, Oh, another litter of puppies. Like, no, I mean, there's some places in the South that do some old wild shit like that. But you know, when it comes down to this thing, cats are so just readily accepted to be outside. People are allowed to breed their cat, let them in and out, not fix them. Oh, my friend got a cat. And I don't know because, uh, my welfare check didn't come in yet, so I can't afford a bag of cat food, but if you hold until next Thursday, I'll take one, then he takes it, and the next thing you know, your fucking trailer is busting with fucking kittens because you had enough for that bag of cat food, but now you're, now you're trying to get help with just getting a, a bag of food, and you surely don't have the, the vet bills for that. You just surely don't have the money for vet bills. These cats that fear people to sit in shelters, they're not, they're not equipped for survival the The Newark branch has an entire flyer out that says ironbound cats are tough as nails, ironbound meaning they're currently in cages and And career cats is what they call them. Cats are being shipped in drones to the New England area. droves, not drones. Um, understand too with these videos and this thing that I'm doing here right now like I I man I'm tripping over my words more than ever I I hope that this stuff is all conveyed in a way where you guys can understand this and and help relay these things to others but you know that's that's the beginning of my story and that's that's so much of what laid the groundwork so also just just to uh, finish out that what i had just said i I realized i left that untied um rocky when he left he recommended me and only me to be the new supervisor and at the time i was still very immature i can tell you even in retrospect despite the fact that the next thing that happened provided me with years of torture and torment and, and and abuse um was They told me, well, if you're going to take the position, you'll have to physically euthanize an animal if there's no other vet in the building. And, like, I just, at the time, I was still early in this. I was having such a hard time dealing with the deaths and all of these things, and I just envisioned a world where I was going to be the one having to euthanize 10 cats in a row. And I knew that there's no way I'm making it through that experience. I'm not going to take on a position that's going to put me into a situation that voids my employment. So I had to turn it down, and I said, if that's, if that's a necessity, I just, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Now, again, all things known, Dewan was the next person who wound up being um, picked. Dewan was living in a boarding house. He was, when I got there, he was a part-time employee that would tell me, every time he looked at a cat, I don't like the way this cat's looking at me. Come get this cat. He had been in the building for over a year prior to me being hired and was a part-timer. There was no, there was no substance here. This this man never held, hold, held an animal, owned an animal. This guy was never an animal person, and he still wasn't. He dealt drugs. He juggled girlfriends. He had the office answering different phone calls and cupping the phone and going, it's Kim, What do you want to? Oh, Sherry. It's, eh, you know, he, 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 was, he was treating this entire thing like a joke. And because I was someone who came from up north a little bit, I wasn't scared Duong, if you haven't figured out, um, is is a black guy. And um, that changes nothing for me. Um, Unfortunately, in this area, as I posed before, now times have changed and it's it's become a little bit more inclusive, but they still see uh, at the time... They definitely still saw Dewan as a unicorn, you know. He was – we've never seen one before. (laughs) And uh, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, man. And uh, he came from a beginning of his father owning project buildings, and he got to have all the newest shoes in the world and all this. But to them, this guy was Suge Knight, you know what I mean, because he walked around there, quoted rap lyrics and fucking – spit sunflower seeds into his hand and people thought that this dude was fucking Noriega. He was super thug, you know, This, and I, I wasn't impressed at all because first off I was there for animals. Second off, I'm like, bro, you're out of shape. You came from a rich upbringing. Save that thug shit for someone who fucking believes it. Cause I don't. And I, I didn't have to be like blatantly, um, open and like disrespectful. Like I just detailed, um, but the vibe was yeah i'm i'm not like everybody else and i'm not really impressed now despite the fact that me turning down the job got him the job for many many years he did things to make my job harder he did things to cost animals their lives um he continued to treat that place like a complete joke and when he was de- when when he got fired from there finally for insanely unprofessional everything he was doing was terrible and when he got fired from there he trumped up some fake um, racism story and sued the place and settled out of court for $40,000. There was nothing racist about this. If anything, this guy got preferential treatment for every year that he was there because they were all scared of black people. You know? This guy wasn't anything about what the mission was. This guy wasn't anything about anything. It was it was about them being scared of him. It was a terrible time. It really was, and um, but I only say that to say that you know I I I was seen by some even early on as someone who was responsible enough to take the reins. But I beg to differ in retrospect because again I had yet to even battle through my alcoholism. My alcoholism had not even been born yet. AHS just birthed my alcoholism years later. But I um, I wasn't ready for that. I was ready for being a supervisor long before they made me a supervisor, but not that early. But just to show you, this was the early upbringing of me being, being part of that building, part of what became the standard for CATS. So then once, you know, I became the guy with this this responsibility, this weight, I continued to figure out why these cats would wind up on that list. Why, despite having to make this list and it crushing me, what can I do to to prevent this from happening in this scenario or that in that scenario? And I pushed on every angle of everything that I've ever done in there because it, it destroys you. You have no chance. If you're all in on this, it takes you apart emotionally. You expend yourself physically. You remove your personal life for the most part. You you do things that are not normal for your average person. When I tell people I work six days a week, their eyes would widen. What the fuck? You work six days a week? Yeah, for 21 years. And that's not my preferred uh Amount of days working—that's not my preferred length of time working. That's not my preferred anything. But it was the treadmill I got on that you don't know how to stop running on, and you know the money's not there. Like I said, it took me 18 years to make $18 an hour. The past couple of years, when this guy, when this this uh, administration rolled in, he, um, you know, he he gave me a raise. And I saw it as such a beautiful thing because I knew this for so long. But I also knew this was a backhanded compliment. This this came with another additive. The additive was he was removing everything I loved. And if I could hang on, then sure, you can make this couple extra bucks. But good luck. You're done. Um... the covid situation and um i mean i dealt with so many things through the years i i i could tell you a million stories and and then and i i will put all these stories out there i'm trying to trying to encapsulate as much of it as i can so i can really get you guys to understand where i'm at and catch you up to speed as much as i can i I recorded um, ten five or five ten minute videos earlier today, and then my oldest said, "You know, it's really not a good idea to put that on, like put that up yet, because it's going to overshine your first video." But there's so much more that needs to be said, and I can't because I need these algorithms or whatever to to treat me kindly and and get get the the news and the the viral end of things moving i need this to be known so um i'm kind of lost um there's a million cat stories and and examples of my work i can give you um there's a million directions i can go there's more negative things so many more negative things that i dealt with over the years of had water thrown at me because i spoke about someone who didn't want to show up to work and then i was called a cunt in front of customers all the all the same incident and uh because i because I walked in their direction when they were saying and doing these things, i uh didn't say anything threatening, I didn't curse I didn't anything. I got suspended as well um, you know, but it's like stuff like this was going on, anything negative that they conjure or anything they pull out of the disciplinary file. I can tell you I did everything there for the passion of the animals for the reasons that uh, it was supposed to be. Our mission at AHS was for us to do everything we could for those animals at every every turn. Um well, before I go into the COVID, let's go into the um the uh what what's necessary and, and the difference. See The thing about clear the shelters, people will talk about clear the shelters, and it sounds great, right? Take all the animals out of the shelters, great. But in order to really do that type of thing, you have to just kind of unload them. You have to uh, lower your standards, lower your prices, lower your everything. If if your fifty dollar adoption fee for a cat is keeping people away from adopting a cat, your cat that you're getting from there is has been fixed is up to date on their shots, is tested for feline aids and leukemia and is microchipped and also current flea preventative. It goes home with um, our cats there. Um, we, we made sure they were all stool checked so they come free of parasites of any, any sorts. Um, we did our due diligence on doing everything we could for those animals before they left that building. And your end result is $50. And if you're telling me that's a deal breaker and free you'd be standing in line, then I honestly don't think that you're that great of an adopter. And there's things like that that are hard truths that the people who just want to move things fast don't want to understand. They refuse to understand. They continue to push in the direction of the things that remove your good adoptions and just make them paper adoptions. They're on paper as adoptions. But you don't know what happens to these animals. We pull these animals from so many different bad situations. We get these animals in from every bad situation. For us to be part of creating more bad situations is irresponsible. For years and years and years, as I told you, I had to do the euthanasia list. The the um, My day off has been Sunday for a long time. Um, the office manager who would have the other um, say over things being euthanized, I would be the one who put the list together and then she would kind of just forward it to the, the vet at that point. Uh, she'd, take you know pull the paperwork and to call for the animals to be sent down to the vet and that that was kind of her role in it but she was going to be the one that kind of just verified what i did she had been here for very long and you know that that's just what it was um after a while obviously it came to just streamline just me you know telling whoever whether it be the vet or whoever but it's besides the point um when i would go when i would by the, It would be Friday or Saturday, generally, we would do some sort of put-to-sleep list. We would be forced to have to do some kind of put-to-sleep list. Because all week I would move cats around, I would match cats up, I'd get cats in roaming, we'd get cats adopted, we'd get this going, we'd get that going. And if we didn't have any empty cages and we knew we had cats coming in, we were going to have to euthanize cats. We would have full cages more times than we would have open cages. But we would weigh those those as they came and i learned over time that it's always better to be reactive and not proactive when it comes to euthanasia because if you're proactive you're euthanizing banks of cages knowing that eventually cats will be there well i mean one of those cats you killed could have went home tomorrow before the the other cat showed up so you really can't jump the gun when it comes to ending something's life you need to hold out for the last fucking second and that's, that's a fact about it. The, the thing is, is, these people who want to move numbers, they just want big numbers. They just want numbers moved, and there's no shortcut to this. There are cats that have been through tremendous trauma and lived such a survival instinct-based life that now need to be taught the ways of being a cat, and that doesn't come overnight. It doesn't. And if you want that, you can have that. That's not an impossibility. That's not an unrealistic standard. It's a real thing that I did for 21 years. And now people try to gaslight you and tell you, no, no, some cats aren't meant to be indoors. Actually, many of them aren't. Yeah, bullshit. Because I just have the names and faces of who who we're talking about. So anyway, um, a lot of times before the weekend, we'd wind up doing a, a put-to-sleep list. And whether it be five cats, seven cats, whatever it was, I'd go, I'd Be off on Sunday, and when I came back on Monday, many and many a weeks, the kitchen would have dog crates with cats in them stacked close to the ceiling in our kitchen area. Now, when I saw that, I immediately knew to do what I have to do, and then I have to make a list because when the office manager came back, she was off on Mondays. When the office manager came back on Tuesday, I had to have answers. I had to have a list. And in my mind, that list had to be as small as it could be. Sometimes there was no chance of small list. And this was weekly. This was this was this was every day that you had to balance your cages and find out. There were times that again people would try to be proactive and be like, "The ACO is coming in with four cats and we have two cages. We need to make a list right now." And there's lists that were made under those under those uh, panic buttons. Those, those fire alarms being pulled. And those, those cats are gone. Dogs are gone because people wanted to make sure that they were going to be okay, but we've also had instances where those cats are gone, and then, oh, remember those four cats that were supposed to come in? One was gone on arrival. One was feral. The other one was critically injured and needed to be euthanized. And, um, Here's the other one, which means the two cages that we had would have left us with one open cage and multiple other cats died in that situation. So it's it's situations like this that I had to continue to train and, and teach my mind to act responsibly, to not act too fast, to not act in a way when others are panicking where I go along with the panic, where I go with the flow of how things are. So understand that over years, our ability to balance cages and Push ourselves to the brink without crossing over that threshold allowed us to help as many cats as that building allowed us to help at all times. This is what we did. And over years, that became our standard is what we did. And because we were so good at it, because we had an ACO that was out there solving problems, she she would go out there and she would go, there's a mom and kittens on this street. I trapped the mom. I fixed her. we're gonna to try to see if we can acclimate her. you know if we could um we can get her to adjust and see if she's all right sometimes she would foster them and she would she'd have them in her house in her laundry room in a in a in a crate or something, trying to get them to come around before they made a decision or we made a decision on them, and then she would round up the kittens. She'd, she'd text me at 2 in the morning, and I finally got the last one, the tortie. She's been dodging the trap for a week. She'd, she'd have a drop trap, which if you don't know what a drop trap is, it's kind of like what Wiley e. Coyote would try to catch the roadrunner in with. It's like a box with a string food in there, and you, you, know, you start feeding them under the trap every day. You just feed them under the trap, and you never do anything with the trap. You don't close it. You don't do anything. They get comfortable with being around there, and before you know it, you're able to go out there while they're eating, and then you can close the thing, and then you can transfer them into a cage because some are too smart to go into the have a heart traps to trip them. Maria would dedicate countless hours to making sure problems were solved. So many ACOs, their entire animal control officer's ACO, just in case. I, I say so many things, I don't want to lose you in any terms that are animal terms, animal field terms, because this is something that the public needs to know what animal field, what the animal field is doing. I'm trying to define the animal field to the people who don't know is what I'm doing. So, um, she would solve problems. Other ACOs would go out, oh, another another litter of kittens on Sycamore. And then next year, more cats on Sycamore. Oh, Sycamore again. And I, over the years, I heard so much of that where the office would say, oh, such and such is up to it again, this and that. Maria would get in their ass. She would knock on their door and be like, what's the problem here? Look, I helped you out with cats last year. I told you, don't do this again. You come out here, and you're feeding cats and this and that. You call me immediately, and I'll get them fixed for you, and we won't have this problem again. She went out of her way. That is not in the job description, and it needs to be. Their job description is you have a call at this address. Go get this animal and bring it back here. That's it. And as long as that's what ACOs are doing and the laws don't protect cats, There will be millions of dead cats every single year. And when these are the organizations that are responsible for figuring out who dies and lives, we need change. We need big change. When money people, when number people are are, are in charge of what goes down and what lives and dies, animal people need to overpower those people and redefine what their job is. Remind them what it is take it away from the people who don't belong holding it They don't deserve to have the responsibility of that and they damn sure don't deserve to have the paychecks They have while the people that make almost nothing struggle The CEO doesn't work on weekends the CEO doesn't want contact when he's on vacation He doesn't want you to contact them when he's on vacation Lions, Tigers and Beers. That's the big that's the big uh event over at Popcorn Park. Right? Lions, Tigers and Beers is uh, you know, beer tasting event and all that stuff. Sounds lots of fun, right? But like alcohol was never ever allowed in the popcorn park zoo. Uh the, the popcorn park zoo was a family friendly environment. Always. And you know, the thing about it is is I you know, I'm I, I'm a big fan of the Bronx Zoo. If anyone knows me, they know that's my favorite place on the planet. It's, it's an oasis. They hold beer fests as well, too. That place is massive. They can have a beer event, a Halloween event, or whatever going on, and it doesn't affect your zoo experience at all. When the CEO does his beer event there, his Lions, Tigers, and Beers... He closes the zoo for the day. Last year, he he closed the zoo for two days, a day in preparation and a day of. And it's by ticket only, and that's it. They had a 45-year celebration of Popcorn Park. 45 years to celebrate all the years of families bringing their kids there and feeding the deer and the birds and and just walking around there and enjoying the stories of the animals that were rescued from terrible situations and being able to pass that that feeling of helping animals on to the next person that was that was the aura of popcorn park that's what popcorn park was the 45 year Celebration of that was an adults-only event with $100 a hundred-dollar-a-head fee, with alcohol. And again, look, I again, I am ten years sober off alcohol, just about. Sorry, don't want to count my chickens too soon. Although you'd have to fucking force it into my body for it to happen between now and July, because if cancer and everything I just went through hasn't driven me to drink, believe me, it's gone for my life. Okay, um, it's not in my agenda to make my situation worse, and I'm positive that that would make my situation worse. So. Uh, I'm not saying this because I'm just saying alcohol is the devil and anyone who drinks is garbage and fuck all drinking events. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying because this was not the identity of Popcorn Park. Mm-hmm. This was not our focus. When we would run a, a gift auction, when we would run a, a, a an event showing dogs or presenting cats or anything, it never... It never was shared. It was never promoted by our Newark branch. Our Newark branch uh, very, very rarely uh, posts an animal that we're posting. Or, or now, now things are a little different. But um, there was never a us together feeling. And now Newark is, you know, selling tickets, and Tintin is is selling tickets for lions, tigers, and beers. Because yeah. It's 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 the uh, CEO's drinking event, and uh, that's that's what he's interested in, hobnobbing with his friends, and hmm, look what we have here. And they spent thousands upon thousands of dollars just to host that event. Now that event sure raised a bunch of money, but um, cats are being cleared out of the shelter. They're opting out of cat business. As I told you before, when you extend yourself to how many cages do we have left? And then the CEO changes the shift to, we will clear every cat out of that shelter and leave it empty. You're irresponsible because you're opting out of the cat business. As us being AHS Popcorn Park, we took the responsibility to fill all those cages that we have with animals that need homes. With animals that need our help for rehabilitation, we've had abuse situations happen all over the place. Dogs from fighting situations like Vinny. We've had court case mastiffs that filled our kennels that we had to take care of for a year and a half, two years, because they they were tied up in court cases. We couldn't adopt them out. These dogs with eight-year lifespans would sit in our kennels, and we would just have to continue to do everything we could for them, knowing that a breeder is fighting hard to just keep breeding them, to put them back in that life where they're overbred. Surgeries aren't being done. Eye surgeries are being overlooked. All these other things are being overlooked because we took on the responsibility of being who we were. We're the, we're the, we're the shelter was there. We were the ones that were there for the animals. When you're void of animals, you can't say you're there for them. You can't pat yourself on your back and, and, and claim victory because you're all out of animals now because there's a clear need across the board for animal rescue. And we served our part in that for a long time before it was opted out on. Kitty City is a program. Let me tell you about Kitty City. Kitty City is a program while all it had its flaws, and I'll outline those. Uh, had two prongs. On one end, it was uh, an area where you can will your cat. You can will your cat to AHS, and they would live out their lives in that room. There was a very high fee for it and some people would pay the full fee, and some people would just leave five grand to the AHS and say, hey, you know, uh, we're willing our cat to us. And they would take that money, they'd cash that check, and the cat would wind up in Kitty City. Um, The reason why I think the will program was always incredibly flawed and terrible is because they would sign these contracts, and they would make sure that the cat can never leave there, and some of these cats didn't want to live with other cats. So we were tied to these things of trying to make these cats survive doing everything we can in that room to shift things around and isolate here and do this there just to make things comfortable enough so hopefully this cat doesn't crash and die. And that was our responsibility as employees, not the higher-ups, the CEOs who got a portion of those those $5,000 checks, those $20,000 checks. When people are signing estates over and they're figuring out what part is their cut, when their paychecks are coming in weekly, when they're taking vacations and, and visiting other countries and other states and going on island vacations and boats and all these other things that they're doing, we're working six days a week and working with the animals that people paid to live their lives out there and making sure that we don't fail on their, on their agreement. With these people that was unrealistic to begin with, but now we are tied to the responsibility of these animals. We are fighting every single day for those cats, for those dogs, to have the best we can give them within the walls of a shelf. While the higher-ups live better lives, while the higher-ups look down upon us, and when they want, they clap their hands, they snap their fingers, and our world falls apart. They have more power. They will tell you, every step of the way that you don't know all of the things. You don't know all the layers to it. You don't really understand everything about it, even though you've been in the trenches and you understand more than they can ever imagine. You understand more layers of this than they could ever learn because they're not willing. This isn't their life. This isn't their passion. This isn't what they come in every single day. This isn't what they think about when they go to sleep at night. This is everything to us. This is everything to those staff in there that are doing it for the right reasons. And they just get shit on and they can't leave because leaving would leave these animals to those people that don't care, that will throw them away. And you know that. Cancer is the only thing that got me out of there. And that's the other little glimmer of happiness. It's so weird because when you have to look at your own situation say, cancer saved me from the toxic environment that this place was. Cancer saved me from this guy slowly killing me, because make no mistake about it, this guy hit the gas pedal and opened the floodgates for every single thing I fought against, but he was little by little trickling all of this in. And this would have happened slowly and painfully in front of me until I probably jumped off of a bridge or something along those lines. He had me at the brink when he stepped in there. Because I I just talked for... I don't know, forty minutes and I recorded ten five ten I don't even know numbers. Five ten minute videos like right before I did this, but then trying to keep the algorithm right, I don't know what I said on this and what I said on that and uh I um I could say so much. Um I told you about John Bergman. I tell you what, what his his replacement is. And this is the guy who was brought in by, by the uh, CEO, and uh, his replacement is a guy who's arrogant. He's got a smug, looking down on you look at his, on his face. He walked into that building and he wasn't introduced to me. He'd intro- introduce himself. He walked past me as if he's already been told about me, and he disgusts me. He hates me he would say hi to three people in a group and not say anything to me and, and smug look on his face and walk out. Never a day in his life did he approach me and say my name is fill in the blanks because I'm doing my best to avoid mentioning names, or if I do and I slip, I, I mention them. It's okay, but um, I, I'm just not trying to... Again, I I don't have any ability to fight for myself when this takes other other levels. You know? I mean, obviously, physically, I could defend myself. I don't think that's the route it's going. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not scared of a human being. That's, that's the thing that um, has allowed me to do so much of this because humans are looking badly down on cats that I know that I, I have faith in. And at the end, other humans will support this animal and relish in, in its beauty and its friendship and companionship. So this guy uh he's very uh arrogant. Um, I'm just saying this cuz this is my opinion, so like um uh, as far as slander goes, as far as any of that stuff goes, um this is my personal opinion. I think he's a fucking dickhead. Um, I'm glad that he said none of the things that he feels about cats to my face cuz I don't think I'd be out right now. I I don't think there's a chance that I'd have a free life right now because he's openly speaking against cats. He doesn't like cats. He wouldn't date a woman that had a cat. He thinks they're evil. And this is the new face. This is the new face. And he's very reptile-centric. He he loves snakes, lizards, spiders, um, birds of prey. Um, He'll tell you he loves all animals, but he's He's uh, masquerading as an animal lover, despite his ridiculous portrayal of that. Um, and I'm sure he's a hero in the reptile world. Seems to know his shit there, you know? But, um, you know, that doesn't change a whole lot about all the other um, factors. Um, he says consistent, inappropriate shit all over his Facebook, um, constantly making sexual jokes and all this other stuff. He's supposed to be the representative of Popcorn Park and um he he um he was hired as an educational ambassador or educational director of education there was never an educational department, so what happened too is um he now has a falcon that he found to retire from medieval times. Now he gets to carry that around and bring it home with him and, and, and make a spectacle of himself. It's all about his attention. You can see that in his delivery to everything. Um, it's very look at me, which John Bergen was never that. If anything, John would tell you don't look at him because he's doing animal stuff and he needs it to go right. You know, He would distance himself from people in fear that they would ruin what he was trying to accomplish. Where Danny is trying to create a facade and and a and a big you know smoke and mirrors and and a big uh, fireworks show to look at this, but it's not it's not what you think. If you if you're buying into that bullshit, please look deeper. The um, they created what is what is being called Educational Island. Education Island is a big. Uh, it's like a center spot. As soon as you walk into the zoo, there's a pond. And in the middle of that pond um, is uh, was a hawk enclosure. And it used to hold multiple hawks. Um, yes, the enclosure needed um, renovation. Um, I have pictures of this, this um, enclosure in the spring when the bamboo's popping up and all the flowers are blooming. And, I have pictures of in the winter, covered in snow, and it was beautiful. In the middle of that pond, it looked like the entry to an animal habitat. It looked like the zoo. Now it's got a big, colorful, obnoxious sign in front of it, and they ripped the hawk enclosure down. They moved the hawk enclosure, and in the middle of that, that is Educational Island. That is where Danny gets to stand. So Danny gets to educate people on animals while replacing the home for an animal. He couldn't talk out in front of the building. He couldn't talk for the building. He couldn't stand in front of that hawk enclosure. He needed his own little circle that he could be spotlighted because his words aren't powerful. He just wants to create a show. He just wants to create a spectacle. That's what he's about. That's the representation. When he discussed his, his dislike for cats with all of his friends on Facebook, my staff there, my, my wonderful cat staff there was outraged at seeing it, and rightfully so. They addressed it to the CEO, and you know what the result of that was? The result of that was they got blocked from his account, and they have to work with him and work under him every day and walk by him with that smug look on his face. With him knowing that they told on him and them knowing that there's nothing they can do about it. What AHS is now. In Newark, they continue to... 545 cats have been live released from Newark between now and January. Live releases become their new... Goal. Because live release on paper says they left our system alive. We're heroes. No, that means you threw them away. I deal in adoption. I deal in homes. I deal in the the, the finality to a story. We have to be a big part of the darkest part of their story to get them to the, the brightest part, the happiest part. To cut out that end where the happiest part doesn't exist, but we still continue to run on this treadmill only to have sadness as our final result over and over again. We'll take all of the good people out of the shelters. It will take everybody with a good heart out of the shelters and make it just a mechanical operation that animals are moved through heartlessly. And they'll find plenty of people for that. Because our animal lovers who are willing to go above and beyond, go above and beyond, and die on this hill are few and far between. And they exist out there, but they're being shammed. They're being lied to. Shelters aren't evil. So many of the people who run shelters are fucking evil. There are heroes in every shelter. I guarantee it. There are people who would love to do more if they had the opportunity, if they had the platform, if they had the ability to do it and know that their their management would stand behind them. Their management would stand behind them and support them. When this man showed up, there was uh, the new CEO. There was an instance where he told me there was going to be a meeting about cats next week. This was, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, wherever we were at at the time. Um, timeline-wise, all blurry. Um, so he left me on that, that edge for a week. And for a week, that meant I didn't go to sleep as well. That means I woke up nauseous every morning. That means every time I got paged to the office, my anxiety shot up and I felt like like my skin was crawling. Or i had a caffeine rush that was too heavy and my body was jittery and i almost felt like i was going to pass out you don't know how many hours i've spent with that feeling coursing through my body i finally finally the day came i woke up nauseous didn't eat my my breakfast got into work and had to work until a good one o'clock, until twelve, one o'clock, until they even addressed me or acknowledged anything was even going on, because it means nothing to them. They can go about life after making these these declarations that we will have a discussion about all the cats next week. On to the next, and they just turn that off and move on, while we come apart, while we panic, looking at our cats, begging them to make that next, make that extra step. Please, I just need to present you to the right person today, tomorrow, any day before this meeting. I need you to be in the right place before any of this happens. You just saw the danger coming and You just couldn't couldn't stop it. You just couldn't say anything. There's no words that could put it to a stop. There's nobody who comes in and saves you. There's nothing. So the day finally comes, and I'm paged to the back hallway. And as I walk into the back hallway, he's standing there with two women I've never seen before, and he says, these are such and such and such and such from whatever outside organization. We're here to evaluate all the cats in the shelter. And I turned pale white, and I, my jaw dropped, and I panicked, and I said, I got to get out of here because I saw that train coming. I saw that they were evaluating and figuring uh, figuring out what the placement was going to be for every cat in the shelter. They were They were primed to go categorize our shelter and figure out what the plan was for every category of cats. I saw it coming without them saying the words because I've been doing this too long not to see danger. That's the thing about this animal field is you become very protective, which is why over the time I've, Understand, I've understood John Bergman's coldness towards me a lot over the years because it, it for the longest time it didn't make sense because our our mission was so parallel. he had such the 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 heart of what I, the intentions that I had and and it made all the sense in the world for him to be like this is my guy and it just didn't happen. We had a couple moments but it was mostly cold and in the end I understood because outsiders and other ears. More times serve more harm than good. You know, I, even through this, people will, I mean, I, I have a friend that works at such and such a shelter or this, this rescue. Don't, don't even bother. Every person in the animal field has their hands full. If they mean well and they're trying, believe me, they're overburdened. It's a toxic environment. It's a terrible, terrible situation to be in. And this is my attempt to make it better for them as well as trying to fix my situation, try to make better for cats everywhere. Because I don't have a choice. I worked for 21 years, six days a week, and got cancer. And when I got cancer, they opened the floodgates to everything I fought against. And I I don't know how else I could handle that other than what I'm doing. Um... This is all new to me. I don't know how to play the system. I don't know any of that. Oh, I think i got to go back to the financial thing. I never finished that. I just remembered that. Um, let's finish this part. See if we can remember that part. So um, so what what happened then when he brought these people in to evaluate every cat in the shelter is I punched out and I walked home. I don't drive. I put my backpack on. My wife was at work. And I walked home. 10 miles in work boots, carrying my water in my backpack. And um, I had lots of people stop, try to give me a ride. I had lots of people try to stop, get me to come back, and I wouldn't. Because I knew if I went back, I would have unleashed and told this guy something. And I knew if I got home too quick, I would have jumped online and exposed everything that just happened. And my fear was that I would never be able to walk back in and help those cats again. I still had an obligation to every cat that was still there, no matter what he took out of there. No matter what his plans were, every day that those cats were there was another chance for me to do right by them. So I couldn't just walk away permanently, but I had to leave the building before I burned my bridge there or I burned my bridge home. The only thing I posted is I posted... You shouldn't try to fix what isn't broken. You might wind up breaking it in the process. By the time I got home, I had urgent texts and voice messages from John telling me, you have to take that down. They're telling me, you have to take that down. That was too much for them. So you imagine how I feel saying everything that I'm saying now. This, this less than two years later, two years later, whatever it is. I walked home that 10 miles, and and John wasn't even going to suspend me. He called me concerned about me. I thought my life was over. At that point, I thought I was going to have to kill myself. I thought everything that I was came to an end, and I wasn't that anymore. It took me a lot of struggle and battle mentally just to put myself in the right perspective to say, he can't take a fucking single thing you did away from you. He can't take a single one of those cats out of people's homes that you've already put there and put them outside. He could ruin the future. can't ruin your past. Nothing was for nothing. Everything was for a reason, and you won more times than he could ever fucking win. He's not interested in the world that you were in. So it took me that to steer myself back onto the road and not leap off a fucking bridge, not jump back into a bottle, not jump into any of that shit. As months went by, more and more threats and... and, um, situations happened that I had to work through. Um, they they hooked me up with um, the Newark shelter, and they were pretending to be very eager to work with me because of my experience. But it was only a way for us to take more Newark cats. Well, as soon as they would turn up the volume on any of those type of things, my brain would start moving and create things. For years, they had abandoned their small dog room as a valuable area because years ago they used to take small dogs from our newark shelter which our newark shelter would get small dogs in in i mean they got so many of them and our small dog adoptions were tremendous but at one point they just decided it would be easier to just send them out to rescues instead of sending them to forked river they didn't want to be bothered they just wanted them off the books after all so that happened and that happened long before the ceo came in so when it came in that was perfect they didn't have to worry about any of that and that dog room would really, because small dogs are the most adoptable thing in an animal shelter. Far, far more than big dogs. Far, far more than cats. Cats are the bottom of the, the pedestal. Um, I think probably probably the hardest thing to adopt out in a shelter. I mean, um, the rats are definitely a difficult animal, for sure. Um, but they wind up getting homes, too, because generally you're not as overrun with them. So if you get a batch of them, it takes you a while to get them a home, but it's not quite years. So I still got to say that the cat with any kind of personality issue or, or or trauma to work through is at a disadvantage from day one. Um, there are people talking bad about that cat on its arrival. So I, I don't feel that that happens to any other animal. I don't think a guinea pig comes in and they go, like, I don't like the fucking look on that guinea pig i swear to fucking god like if that shit doesn't come around we're killing it like there's guinea pigs that bite there's guinea pigs that are friendly there's, there's you know same thing with rabbits and stuff It so I, I just think cats are put into such an unfair category where they're they're talked about in just these statistics and numbers and percentages where it just goes away certain certain ma something certain amounts of those are just expendable um so this person in Newark would would try to portray herself as my friend, which I I'm not I'm not I'm not naive I'm not dumb, and I don't buy into people's shit. I my general vibe has been if you haven't picked that up from this whole thing is most people don't like me and I've gotten pretty used to that. I don't like it at all, but me not liking it or liking it or anything isn't really going to change a fucking thing about it. So all I could do is be brutally honest about everything I I live. Do what you will with it. And suddenly, I think I'm starting to get the tide to turn where people are loving me for my honesty instead of hating me. I know my attitude is changing to positive as well, so I'm positive that that has a great effect on it as well. I just hope that this keeps heading in this direction because I'm in trouble. I am in big trouble mentally and financially. And um, So anyway, back to, back to this person uh, I'll talk about briefly. Um, she would express you know, her need for help in Newark. So I said, look, we can convert this small dog room to our Newark cat room. Because what would happen is we would take 10 cats from Newark, two of those cats would have ringworm, and then we'd have to isolate a whole fucking area, and we wouldn't be able to adopt out anything in that area for like a month. So in order to help them, we'd have to have a place where we can put them, which we never had, to isolate them so that way it didn't affect our whole building even if something broke out. Different types of upper respiratory strains, Khaleesi virus, ringworm, all these different things would have great implications on the entire shelter if we had to put them right amongst them. So um, we were able to convert that over because after all, we would wind up with maybe two local dogs in there, three local dogs in there for weeks on end. And those small dogs would still get homes, you know. So within those weeks, um, some of these dogs would be put into the kennels and be scared. But within days, you can add a dog crate with a, a blanket over it, and we've seen Chihuahuas take to that dog crate. Now it's like their little, their little safe zone, and they go in there, and then they come, they come bouncing out of there like nothing's wrong in the world. So they adjust to the kennel, even though it is a scarier environment. And it is harder. It served the cats far better and we had so little dogs to go into that room there was 18 cages and it was being consumed mostly by 2-3 to three dogs and an entire employee who was taking care of 2-3 to three dogs all day when I used to see that dog that dog room jumping they used to have 2 crates on top of there so there was 21 cages or 20 cages plus you know 18 cages plus the 2 set up pop up cages um, that's how many dogs were in that room all the time So once they stopped doing that, it just really – the room wasn't being used properly. So I I came up with the idea, and I converted that to our Newark cat room, which opened up the floodgates to allowing us to consistently take cats from Newark in a way that we never had before. Um, I figured – Doing so would also alleviate pressure and hopefully take them off of our back. So we can continue to get all the adoption we're getting. We can continue to push every single cat. We can continue to rehabilitate cats, work with every cat, not give up on anybody, and still on top of that, help them. Somehow, that wasn't good enough. They were still staring at our long-term residents. They were still staring at our numbers. Why aren't they moving? It's not moving. They were still sending cats to rescue and sending cats outside calling them adoption, and then comparing their adoption numbers to ours and considering us failures. This is the shit that I'm talking about. This is the torture that we had to keep going through, where you're gaslit. No matter how hard you work, there's still someone above you going like, yeah, I'm not impressed. You know, this person just raised funds for their birthday in Newark. Feral boxes in every one of the cages in the Newark shelter which alleviates the staff from touching the cats. Gives them a safe place to hide so they feel safer, she says. False. Cats would come in scared. Many a times I would, I would implement cubbies. I would use cubbies or beds that had a hidey hole in it, and they would go into there and they would use that as their safe space. Sometimes we'd use that for a couple weeks, and then we would transition them out of that the best we could. We wanted to make the entire cage the safe space for them because that was the environment that they were going to meet potential adopters. That was the environment that they would be able to start stretching themselves out and presenting their best self. There is no presentation within a feral cat box. So when you tell me and you tell the world that these cats are feeling safe and comfortable and not scared in their feral cat boxes, you'll have to explain to me how that's good for adoption. You'll have to explain to me how this Band-Aid is going to fix the big problem when you're making fast decisions on these very same cats. They don't have the time to settle in in their feral cat boxes before you deem them unfriendly, before you deem them unadoptable or career cats that are tough as nails. This cat is so scared that you feel they need a safe space in their cage to hide, but you don't feel they need to be safe enough to be kept indoors. You feel that they should be Iron bound and tough as nails, but their cage is so scary that you needed a box for them to live in, right? It's all bullshit. I have talked to people in that shelter, and I asked them. I always wanted to help. My intention on going there to pick cats out to bring back to Forked River was not only to assure the health and safety of those cats that were coming back. My intention was to make sure that I could pass forward my knowledge and my experience and try to help to teach other people to do things the right way. Cause I was under the delusion that they were willing to move forward, that they were willing to do better. And I, they would bullshit me time in and time out. I had one time I asked the woman who, who are the cats you have a problem with. And she pointed to a calico, she pointed to the calico. I looked at her card. It was 14 years old. And she said, she's nice now. Cause she's in heat, but man, when she's not, she's, Ooh, this 14-year-old female cat was still going into heat cycles. If you don't fix your female cat, they will most likely have pyometras in their life, which is an infection in their uterus, and they'll die if you don't have emergency surgery from it. To go through an entire life of heat cycles and your emotions and your, your temperament raging and people judging you on that temperament on what kind of life you deserve based on the temperament you display and your job is to decide where this cat goes and you will skip over the part where the fixing needs to happen long before any decisions are made on what and who this cat is and it's not being done cats are being sent unneutered into rescues and when the unneutered male cat bites the rescue worker and gets sent back to the rest to the shelter they're being told this cat is aggressive and we have no avenue for it. I have a big story about Gus. I'm just noticing I got 13 uh, 13 minutes left on this. So I have to wrap this up so I can't go into new stories. I got to just kind of, um, bring this to a close. Um, I have so much to say and I'm going to do my best to continue to put these out there. Um, I'm busting at the seams trying to put this all out there, trying to get the response. I'm back and forth through my phone. I'm doing these things where I'm opening my Instagram, checking things, closing my Instagram, opening my Facebook, checking things, closing my Facebook, opening my TikTok, closing my TikTok, opening my YouTube, going back to my Instagram. And I'll do that for hours because some of it is providing positivity and hope. Some of it is making me feel that I'm being heard and... Those things do provide hope, but it also creates this consistent panic. And I have such a panic of what happens when the silence creeps back in, when when all these people agree that it's so sad and then it just goes away and I still sit with everything that I've been given. Financially, I'll go over that real quick. I um, When I went out in October, they put me on temporary disability. The disability was only supposed to run the initial, I believe, 90 days, I believe. Um, That was the um, two months that I couldn't lift 10 pounds and couldn't do anything after that. He said, well, if you wanted to go back to work, you can go back to work, but I want you to see an oncologist first and make sure, you know, your line of treatment, if you um, go the route of chemo, things might change, this might be different. Um, you know, but as far as physical limitations, I don't really have any for you. And, and that would, you know, be that As soon as I met the oncologist, she pitched to me that she would like me on these chemo pills because the likelihood of this cancer coming back is very high being only 44 at the time now, 45. And, um, uh, that this would be a six month treatment and, um, they would put me on extended disability for that. Well, they didn't say to me that, oh, by the way, but that's also impossible because if you've already expended a few months um, in this disability, it has a cap of six months of payment. I worked 21 years, and through six months, that was all the money that disability had for me. I, I've capped out. I. So they first fucked up, the woman who was a receptionist at the doctor's office told me, look, I know how to work this stuff. If anything happens, call me immediately. I swear, like, I know how to do this stuff. I know you need to feed your family. Uh, I know what you're going through. If anything happens, let me know, and I will take care of it immediately. Don't wait, because they will wait. And shit happened. I called her. We called her, and um, they said she left on bad terms, and uh, she fucked everything up and um yeah no one in the office knows anything about how to handle this shit so amongst it again i was blind to the fact that this 6 months existed and this 6 month cap existed the certain amount of money that i was allotted which you know was less than i was work was even making working and i also wasn't even told that i had to pay back the insurance money that I would be paying weekly through my job because it doesn't come out through disability. Which again, how the fuck would I know that? I only worked for 21 years and then got cancer. I don't. I'm not well versed at this. So the disability cut off, and I was pretty much informed that no, no, it's done. Yeah, that's that's it. Uh, so anyway, there's cancer grants out there, and there uh, you can call a social worker, and you could do this, and you could do that, and then no one gets back to you. A social worker got back to me and said that there's a possibility we can file for Social Security which uh, we tried to file for yesterday. I believe we – I don't know about successful because I haven't gotten, like, verification or, like, uh, a notice that it's going to be, um, you know, uh, like, put through. But um, they're telling me that that I should be eligible for $1,800 a month. Um, that's clearly a bit less than I was making. Um, but I would be thrilled – to have anything coming in right now because again I I got my tax return and I've been spending out of that as my way to survive and pay the bills. So I've spent probably 60% of that. Now I have a mortgage payment to make on May 1st and that's that's where I'm at. Um I'm doing what I can to keep my mental stability happy, you know. My, my, my mental stability with what's left of it, I'm trying to keep that going. So I'm not, I'm not spending frivolously, but I'm still doing the things that I need to do to keep myself healthy. And whatever that means, you know what I mean? There's, there's things that I have to get to keep my world peaceful. I have to continue doing my garden. I have to continue to do the things that I do to make things beautiful in life. Otherwise, all I see is this darkness. Um I've asked people to support me in any way they can and I, I greatly appreciate donations, whether it's five dollars, twenty dollars, whatever dollars. It it's it's all very appreciated, but I also like I keep trying to instill in you guys that I don't want your last dollars. I don't want it. You're working week to week. That's what I was doing. I, I, I didn't have the money to be helping other people. You know, there, there are people who are, are viral, that have millions upon millions of followers. There are people who are celebrities who can snap, and this entire situation will become amazing and beautiful. And not only will I be back on top of things, I'll be able to branch out and now help cats everywhere, help shelter employees everywhere, create a gold standard of what cat care in the United States of America needs to be. That's what I want to do. I want to be flown over all over the country doing seminars on what I've learned instead of being hated and worked against in my own organization. This is what I need. I need support I need people to rally around i need i need um my my statement in this my my motto in this my slogan in this is is that of planet of the Apes is apes strong together. Or apes together strong if you're an ape and you um do that with the sentence, but apes strong together. Because again, you you can only accomplish so much by yourself. Millions cannot be cannot be stopped. We need to do this together. We need to band together, we need to find all the most powerful people who are willing to make a difference and we need to get this into their their consciousness. We need to get this into people's to-do list. We need to get this where uh, it's viewed. It's viewed. That's the most important thing. I I really feel my everything is so genuine that all you need to do is, is tune them into it. And if they get to view it, Howard Stern, a John Stewart, an Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, these, these people are animal lovers. And, hey, I don't know, maybe their fucking co-host is just as big of an animal lover. I mean, there's so many people out there. There's so many B-level celebrities that would be willing to do so much. And you understand that, you know, when we all come together and we're a team and we succeed, we all win. We're all triumphant. Everybody that's Team J-Cat comes out on the top of the, the right side of things, that we're – we're the ones fighting for the good, and when these fucking people and these 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 animal organizations did this to, to Jay and he they did this to these cats, we're here to, we're here to change that, and that could change everything. You know, it's not that's why like I I fought against doing a GoFundMe despite the fact that I need fucking money terribly bad I really do, but I don't want to be the guy that just begs for this. I don't want to be the guy that just says, give me your money and and fix me and that's it. It's so much bigger than this. Despite finances being the thing that will fucking bury me first, it's bigger than money. And that's kind of the, the basis of my entire thing is I need to be fixed. I need to be taken care of. But money and numbers is the reason why this is happening. Passion and compassion and general humanity. Humane. This is what this is all about. This has never been about me. To a certain extent it has to be now. It has to be. I deserve better and they deserve better. I suffered in silence for twenty one years. These motherfuckers just dropped a hammer on me. We gotta fight back, guys. Hit up my hit up my TikTok. Please share that shit with everybody you could possibly think of. Anyone you could reach out to and send that video to. Anyone who you think has, has the ability to send it to more people, has the ability to reach more people, more eyes. I don't need them specifically every time to be like, go donate money to this guy. I want them to tell more people until it's un- undeniable. I've preached that for a long time on a lot of levels that the most important thing to do is to be undeniable. Work hard enough where no one can deny the things you've done, your intentions. No one can go, I don't know if this guy's bullshitting me or not. Be so genuine that there's no question in the world, and I feel like I've done that. Now I just need other people to know. I thank you guys. I I hope this all reaches you well. Um. I'm going to be doing more of these because if I have to only trickle this shit out on the uh, social medias to keep some algorithm and this and that, I may use this as somewhat of a sounding box for this. And again, I I, uh, wouldn't be doing this at all if it wasn't for the generosity and love that those people that I, I mentioned in the past few weeks, those people made me feel like this mattered. When all this shit started going down, believe me, the wrestling world, the avenue where I spoke to the wrestling world, meant dick to me because that's, that's, this is the stuff that I use for my distraction, my ha-ha shit, so I don't have to focus on the hard, heavy realities. You know, I, I try to snap out of this to, to, to video games, to sports, to the bullshit drama in wrestling and all the bullshit nonsense that goes on in there because to me that's just silly stuff that I could just distract myself with. I don't ever want people to misunderstand what I've done done here with Yakuza Kick Radio as who I am, as my identity. You see slivers of that in there for sure, but this has been an outlet to get away for a long time for me. This is not, J-Cat is the guy that lives his life hating Danny DeMano. No, I rarely think of him. When fuck shit comes up, I address it and laugh at it and send it at all the other people that like laughing with me and then present it on the show where other people like to laugh at it. And by the way, Desert Eagle, Desert Eagle, because that shit took off and I was one of the first motherfuckers out there with that shit. Um, Someone sent it to me, so I surely didn't discover it, but I put it on my show and laughed hysterically at it. And it took like a long sabbatical before it is now uprisen as like a catchphrase. Well, that's 90 seconds left in the show. I want the full duration, guys. Um, I love you, motherfuckers. Please keep supporting me. Please, please help me in any way. Reach out to me. I love hearing it, and peace. With Lucky Lands Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere.